This is the Doc Talk Podcast presented by Betfred Sports 2023, Episode 1. It's a brand new year and a brand new podcast. Good to have you along. I'm Travis Justice. He's Dr. Rob Zaniska. And you know, Dr. Rob, we said when we ended 2022, we were going to switch the beginning part of 2023 up a lot because, you know, there's, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, an offense and a defense and a, and a 3-3-5 and, and a fullback coming back and a power run game and a huddle. We do like fullbacks. We do like fullbacks. So we brought a fullback in today, so we might as well. But, but we're going to focus really in January, February, March, maybe April, just on interviews, getting to reconnecting with people like we it. know. I like it. Telling good stories. And I got to be honest with you, Willie Miller is our guest today. And the dude, check this out. Check this out. If you can show this. He's on the cover of Omaha Look Magazine. I haven't seen that yet. Look at that. Willie, welcome to the Doc Talk Podcast, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me it's, on today. It's hard, to, it's hard to make scrubs look good, but I got to admit, you make scrubs look good, dude. <laughs> See, there goes an offensive lineman trying to, you know, you got put up as a fullback, you know. Dude, the fullback. You, you, guys are, you guys are like ever so slightly smaller, better looking, faster offensive guards. Like if you're not if you're not fast enough and you're not good looking, they move you to the offensive line. Like uh. Dean Steinkuhler, fullback. We're gonna make him an offensive guard. Matt Hoskinson, fullback. Let's make him an offensive guard. Did they ever talk to you about going to offensive line, or were you you were too fast? Thank goodness, no. They they never. <laughs> I, I weighed almost enough, you know, because I was close to about two sixty eight there at my junior year at the end of it. So yeah, they you know they thought about it size wise, but as far as speed wise. I got lucky in that regard, yeah. How tall are you? Um, now is it supposedly with that disc replacement? I'm so supposedly six two. So, I think it's closer to six one. When you played, were you six three? No, when no? I played, I was both right about six foot. But really? I was about six one. I think the disc that compressed my neck took me about right under that about five eleven and three fourths. So Willie graduated from Bellevue West in 1996. Went on to play at Nebraska. Graduated in 2000. And the story gets interesting from there, doesn't it, Willie? It gets very interesting from there. <laughs> yeah, but be sitting here with you. Well, we'll just let's just dive right in because for those of you who don't know, it is a you know everybody thinks you you go you go play college football and you you leave a Husker and and life, life's peachy keen, um, but but you, you went from you know playing in front of seventy five thousand people to some really really dark places. Um, talk about, let's just talk about how you, how you got from there to, and we've got, we've got all day to talk, but just, uh, you're a brand new man. You are a brand new man. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> like you said, when I got done playing, it was one of those crazy things. Um, you know, I was, all I cared about when I played in college was playing there in Nebraska, right? Winning national championships and being a, a key member on that team and giving hundred percent all day, every day. Uh, when I got done, I didn't even think about the league. You know, the league wasn't something that I even thought about while I was playing or something I was going to end up going to play in. But when I got done, there was a lot of NFL teams that actually reached out uh, because the Senior Bowl, the, their group reached out saying they wanted me to come play in that. They wanted me to be fullback for, was it North and South? Or I don't remember how it even goes back then. But the point is I had to tell them, no, I could not do that because I had flown to see a specialist. And that specialist down in Texas had told me my neck was completely messed up he had told me according to all his images his scans his testings that I had played through three spinal concussions and I knew that my neck was really jacked up because towards the end of my playing career down there 
there were weeks where I couldn't feel my arms like at all. I mean, you could, I mean, there was times where I'm walking around campus and it felt like I got struck by a bolt of lightning on the top of my head that would just fire straight through my body. And I'd have to sit down. I mean, there was some crazy stuff going on physically that I didn't notice that. So, like I said, when I was done, the crazy thing is I didn't go and I didn't do the combine thing. I didn't go do the senior bowl. And I still had teams calling me on those days. You know, the first day of the draft, teams are calling. Pretty much every single team that had a fullback made a call. The second day, getting calls. After it's all done, I'm telling these teams, no, I'm done. My neck's jacked. They're talking about, hey, let's get you the, the, the Mike Allstott surgery for your neck. We'll put in a cadaver bone. I said, here's the thing about that. You guys aren't going to have me run the ball all day, every day, like Mike Allstott. You guys are going to have me blocking because that's what you love seeing me do. My neck's gonna not going to hold up from the fullback spot, crashing all day long with, with surgery and a cadaver bone in it. So that was done. Like you said, it was just that weird thing. You crawl up, and I did. I literally crawled up in a fetal position because this is the first time where I recognized football was done. It's over. And I didn't, as I didn't envision it going and, and doing all that stuff, I did realize at that moment I played that sport since I was seven years old and it was all over. So like I said, I literally crawled up into a ball, fetal position, and I balled because I was like, wow, what do I do? I already had a job doing pharmaceutical sales and that was all good. But just mentally, just being done, it was just it just kind of shocked me and rocked my world a little. It's kind of a weird thing with football. I mean, there's not a lot of I mean, this is kind of the oft quoted thing about football is that um it, two aspects to it. One it tends to be very identity-centric. I mean, you talk to a lot of football players, whether it's – I mean, and I'm even talking about like at the high school level, high school, college, pro, above that. There's a lot of – it seems like a lot of identity goes into that. It's like it, it becomes for a lot of players who they are as opposed to what they do because those are two different things. And that, I think, coupled with the fact that, well, yeah, like you said – there's not a ton of sports that just end. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I, so we're kind of a little bit of a wrestling family. Like our kids all, all wrestle, or, or two of our three kids all wrestled. One's playing college football. The other one wants to wrestle in college. One of our kids' high school wrestling coaches actually just retired from senior level wrestling after winning a USA wrestling national title just this past year. I mean, the guy's 40 years old. There's so many of these sports you can do after high school, after college. Everybody talks about lifelong sports. There's not a lot of dudes going out and strapping up football helmets when they're 48 years old in a rec league. That just doesn't happen. Was I mean, there is, there's a finality. Was your identity wrapped up into football at that time? You know, it wasn't. That's the crazy thing is I was that kid that sat in the very front row in all my classes down there in Lincoln. I didn't wear any Nebraska gear, nothing, not, not anything with that. So it was just that weird, uh, I guess, that situation where for the first time I didn't have an outlet, right? I didn't have an outlet because football was my outlet. You know, I, I've learned in the last couple of years, well, when I went to treatment, basically, was that I had zero emotional intelligence, you know, because for me, it just – I would keep everything inside. I let it all bottle up. And that was great in college because then I can go and play and I could play the position of fullback. We got to blast on linebackers all day, every day, right? You can take on Russians all day, every day when you bottle all those things up inside. But when you are done, you know, that's when you actually got to develop some emotional intelligence, start understanding what's truly going on with you, what's going on around you so that you can address those things. 
you know, and rather than just identifying that you're angry, you're understanding different things like Rob and I are having a conversation. We're around a couple of other guys. Rob says something that hurts my feelings. Well, instead of just letting that just kind of go, then the way I address it is simply Rob and I, we, when we're alone for a moment or I grab him and we step aside or whatever and say, hey, you know, when we're talking, you kind of said that kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. Now, that might seem funny to guys in a sense, but honestly, I don't really care what other people think. It's more so that I address that, we have a conversation about it, and then I'm okay. Rather than keeping that inside and being pissed off and later on have to come back at Rob with something else and it escalates. Basically, you don't have to give a fuck anymore, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah you you I, really don't. I mean, that's... Sense, right? Well, well, it's you in a nutshell. Well, well it, it kind of is, and, 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 but, but we'll get into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. He had three spinal concussions. You are in uh, an orthopedic hospital. Talk about this, the severity of spinal concussions. It, I mean, it can vary a lot. I mean, it's it's kind of you hear, hear about a concussion with your brain. The spinal concussion is the same type of thing. It's neurological tissue that's taking a traumatic blow. And I, it's, I mean, and you see it happen. I mean, it's, you know, you, you see some people where, the, I mean, on in a severe sense, which is kind of what you described, I, I got to be honest with you, because I've had a few, I mean, I've had some, I mean, very bread and butter stingers. You get the little zing shoots down your arm, and you're like, oh, that was unpleasant, but you shake it off, and three minutes later, you're back to normal. Mm-hmm. I've never had a situation where I've sat there. So this is kind of one of these things I've never experienced. You hear about it, you see it, you read about it, you study it. I've never experienced a spinal cord concussion, but what you're describing, what you went through where you're walking across campus and you're like, yeah, I can't feel my upper arms today. Mm-hmm. That's scary. Did you ever tell the coaches or players? I, yeah, and I, mean, I guess that would be my next question is, um, yeah, was there any discussion about this down in Lincoln? Well, yeah, I mean, I notified them. I let them know. But here's the thing, too. There was a different game in a different era back, what, 20-something years ago. I mean, like you are talking about as far as stingers, being a fullback down in Nebraska, you want to get your first stinger out of the way, first thing you can in the game, right? You're not doing your job as a fullback in Lincoln if you're not getting at least that one stinger and just playing through it, right? That's what you do as fullbacks. You have a pain tolerance unlike a lot of other people. I mean, you have to to play that position. And like I said, yes, I discussed it, talked about it. I mean, there'd be times where, you know, they're doing their testing or whatever. And towards the end there, before that last game that we had, that last bowl game, they held me out a couple of practices because, again, they knew what was going on. Um, but I, I still, I'm the one who pushed the envelope to keep playing through it and everything else because, again, your team is what – when you're young, your team is what matters. What matters is winning. And when you can take a look, if that guy behind you can play right at that same level, okay, that's one thing. But when you have earned that spot and there's a, there's a difference between you and that next guy and the team will suffer from that, then you step it up and you just do what you got to do, right? Because I, I even think there's a point that pushes past that where you talk about the next guy that can step it up. My, I mean, my I, I had the starting left guard spot my junior year, and it was I was the swing guy also, so I covered both tackle spots. Joel Wilkes was the guy who was the left guard with me so when I'd go to tackle, Joel Wilkes would come in at left guard. I had a bad ankle sprain against Colorado that year. Speaking of fullback, Corey Schlesinger got tripped up by a D tackle. I'm blocking the linebacker. Corey slams right into the back of my calf, just shreds my ankle. No fracture, but then pretty severe ankle sprain. The team doctors told me, yeah, we need you non-weight bearing on that ankle for two weeks. Then we're going to start back up with the rehab. 
I talked the trainers into putting a fiberglass cast around. They'd do the, I'd put on, I'd tape up my ankle, put on my shoe, spat the shoe, and then they would fiberglass cast over the top of it. And I went out and played the next week. I'm looking at the Kansas pennant on the wall. The very next game was against Kansas. I went out because I didn't want to not start. And it was the best thing to do, I mean, the smart thing to do, the best thing to do would have been like, hey, we got Joel. Joel is just as good. Joel starts, I'm resting the ankle up. And it, But it was one of those things where, I mean, in my mind, it didn't even matter if the guy behind me was just as good. I was like, I'm starting. Because you didn't want to give it up. That's my spot. But I think there's always a place in the back of your head, if I give it up, I could lose that spot. Yeah. There's always no, that. I, I do, but I think it kind of goes back to, what, Willie, what you're saying. It's it's the it's the it's that mentality of... it's kind, It comes from the players. I mean, and I don't... And I asked you the question about, like, was there any discussion about treatment or holding out from the trainer standpoint to implicate them more more so than I think that was kind of the the take on it that I was sort of half expecting to hear from you nine out of ten nine tenths of this all comes from the players mm-hmm. to push through that stuff I, I think the vast vast majority it's all internalized from the players themselves. It's not the team doctors, the trainers, et cetera, that are pushing guys. I think in the real world, when you look at most athletes, it's it's all player centric. We're the ones who are pushing this, not the trainers. Agree with that? Dogs. I would agree with that. And I mean, and 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 to, and to go back on that, you know, we can go into the next thing too. But it's like you know, I had a really bad ankle sprain. I had a high ankle sprain my junior year that just. I mean, just messed some stuff up for me. But I was able to kind of – I went through the warm-ups in the, in the pregame and we're going to play Iowa State. But I was able to think about who's behind me. And I had a kid behind me named Tyrone Euler, and he was a heck of a fullback. And he he loved – like, he was one of those guys that listened to me because all I did is pass on what Solis taught us to the younger guys, and to all of them. He listened and he implemented. And I knew that he would be able to hold enough for us to win against Iowa State. So when Solis asked me, can you go, I said, you know what, I had to sit it out today. You know, but again, my senior, yeah, good, good guys behind me. Don't get me wrong, but I, I can't say that I had confidence in anybody like I did my junior year in, in, in Tyrone. So that's why, I, yeah, I wasn't stepping out. So, so it's interesting, and this is where my tune has changed totally. I used to be this anti-pay players. I, I, I used to be anti-unionized with players, and people are going, oh, you can't fucking unionize. And but, but here's what I'm talking about: is that you get done playing. When did your medical care end? For Nebraska, the right day away. you were the day you were done. Right yeah. So the the point is, you should have been able, and Nebraska should have provided you surgery as soon as they knew something was wrong with your back. Would you agree with that, Rob? I mean, I, I would say yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I I think it should. I mean, I do think that that should extend in terms of. I I mean, if if you look at it from the sense of. So a lot of people, and I get this from a lot of people, and it's always an interesting discussion for me because I think the gen, the consensus of the general public watching college sports and pro sports is, well, you look at everything these players are getting. Look at what they're getting by going through this. Um, one of the standpoints I've always taken against that, however, has been for most athletes at a high level, high level high school athletes, college athletes, pro athletes, no matter the sport, they're there more than anything because they're willing to do what it takes 
to be at that level. They're willing to put in the work, to put in the time, to put in the effort. They're allowing the toll it takes on the body to happen to be there. There's some serious sacrifices they make to be there, and I think that warrants value. I, I would... I will always argue, and, I, and I'd be the first to say, I feel like if I could go back and do it all over again, I'm going back and I'm doing it all over again. And I'm not thinking twice about it. Are you? And yes, I, I am. And right. I love it. I loved it. Loved every minute of it at every level. But at the same time, that doesn't mean there wasn't a sacrifice on our part. And I would probably argue if you look at what I put into it and what I got out of it, I probably put far more into it than I ever got out of it. At the same time, I would also say it was worth it. I would do that again without thinking twice about it, but I put more into playing football throughout my career than I ever did get out of it. I think most people are full like that. No, I would think so. And then the other thing about it, for as far as I'm concerned, is yes, I would go back and do it all over again. Now, did I enjoy every minute of it? No, I did not. So good for you to enjoy every minute of it because I did well, not. Well, there, there were and, times you know, I you know, did. So, but. so I'm just going to say that I didn't enjoy every single minute. Yeah. But here's the thing. Like you said, there is a commitment that has to be made. When I was going to go down to Lincoln, Solitz had already told me, and Osborne had told me, they, I was their fullback. I was going to be the uh, fullback down there, and they were giving me that full right to be fullback. The decision I had to make was I willing to play fullback down there because I did not like blocking in high school at all. I mean, there were guys that literally would run me over a couple of times because I didn't care about blocking. Now, I'd run you over all day, every day, and that's what Solich and Osborne loved about me. You know, I could run over guys. I had a great pad level when I went into contact, and they loved that. And Solis just said, plain and simple, he's like, I've seen you play. I've watched you play. I see the tenacity you come with. I can teach you how to block if you're willing to put in the work. And I made that decision. So like you said, I mean, I went down there, started bumping hands. I'm like, I don't like this at all. But I had seen you guys win those national championships. And I was like, you know what? I'm willing to put in the effort. I'm willing to do what it takes to be the best on this field because I'm going to be the starter. I'm going to be the starter when it's my time. You know, and I'm going to listen to these guys and I'm going to work. And I'm going to do all the strategic things. Every little skill that uh, Solis taught me is what I implemented, or else I couldn't have been the starting fullback down there. So, I'm with you on that work. So you get done playing. Did you go to to Nebraska and say, "Hey, can you can you help me out with my neck?" And or did they just say, "Hey, we're, there's nothing we can do for you"? No, you know when I was done, I was done. That's just how I felt about it. And uh, for me personally, uh, not only was it the next situation, but I also had my back. You know, I, I knew that my disc and my back was all jacked up and. You know, when I went on a little bit, I, I knew right away I'm getting out of the state because I love playing here in Nebraska. I, I loved all that. But going into a professional job, I'm the type of guy that I always like competition. I like starting at ground level. I like being on the same playing field as everybody else because I know if I excel and if I'm beating anybody or, or earning any awards, I'm getting that based off of that hard work. I'm not getting that off of, you know, starting with a five-yard head start, anything like that. I felt like professionally doing pharmaceutical sales, I was going to have that 5, 10, maybe 15, 20-yard head start doing that here in Nebraska. So I went to Denver. You know, I moved out to Denver, and pretty much when those calls came in, I was telling you about earlier, I was in Denver. So I'm, I'm there. I'm doing pharmaceutical sales. I'm somewhat feeling alone. But I'm getting out of Nebraska because it hurt too much to be done playing, you know. 
And you're in pain. I'm in pain. And it wasn't really so much my decision, really, either. You know, my body quit on me, you know, and it, it was a tough time because I was also a guy who did the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, those things. And I was very invested in that. And I'm not going to lie to you. I was mad at God. I'm like, how does this happen? You know, here I am, the guy that's trying to walk the straight line. And uh, my body quits on me. And, yeah, so that time, you know, I started cutting loose, man. I started cutting loose. And my body's killing me. You know, I get a prescription right away to start taking those hydrocodones when I'm done playing to deal with my neck pain and my back pain. And me and uh, me and old hydrocodone graduated on up to oxycotton and, and oxycodone. And we just uh, we had a 20 year long, nice, wonderful relationship. Where were you? Were you in Denver the first time you took the oxycodone? No, I pretty much as soon as I walked off the field and was done playing down there in Lincoln, you know, had that script, you know. So and being in Denver, yes, is, is where they're getting, you know, filled pretty much right away and stuff. So. So did they just keep writing you scripts, or did it come to a point where, because we're gonna we're gonna th- I mean we got a twenty year journey to go here. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, was it hey doc I'm still in pain. Hey doc, did they ever say you can't do this anymore? Or did you start taking it getting to that other places? Too? No, no. You know, I pretty much they they were prescribed the whole time, and they are prescribed now. Now I'll say this: when it started early on back in two thousand, I mean that was no problem to get my script or anything like that. You know, now towards later on, 15, 15 years later, then I run into that occasional doctor that would question me, saying, "You know, this is a lot of oxycodone. I mean, you know, this is you're taking a lot of you know opioids, you know, or narcotics for this this deal." And my simple response to that doctor would be, "Did you ever play football?" You know, have you ever played a contact sport? And when they would look at me with that silly look and be like, no, I didn't know. I said, well, you can't talk to me about the pain I feel because you have no idea how intense it is. So I, I'm just letting you know I'm in pain and I need my medication. And if they didn't give it, they usually would. If not, though, I'd find a different doctor and go get it from that doctor. Because, again, in my mind mentally, I, all I can think about is I'm in pain and I know that these pills help my pain. And so... You know, you didn't know 20 years ago, 10 years ago, how much, you know, uh, pain pills and narcotics actually impacted your body more so than just treating that pain. You know, today I know that it numbs your brain. It does a lot of things. I know now that, you know, just that little bit when you're on it longer for a longer period of time, it takes more to work the same level, things like that. So there's a lot of education that's gone on to it, a lot of research that's gone on to it to bring it to a different level today of awareness than what it was 20 years ago. Well, and I remember when I hit the door in medical school, and this is interesting now because I work in a surgical hospital. Mm-hmm. So it's people don't come out of surgical hospitals not in pain. You just had surgery. It freaking yeah. hurts. Um, but I mean, a lot of the, at the time you go back to the really late 90s and the early 2000s, which is it, it's kind of where I feel like there was sort of a rise of sort of the everybody keeps referencing it's almost a cliche now, but the opioid uh, epidemic in 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 the U.S. and at the time there was kind of a strong movement, and I, and I put some blame on the medical community for this, but when we hit when I hit the door in medical school in two thousand, uh, kind of the mantra was is pain is the fifth vital sign. You would ask patients that all the time if they came in with any issue and it kind of became sort of the sort of the the, the MO within the medical community. Hey, this is something we need to treat. People should not be in pain. Now, I think you kind of come around a little bit. There's a degree of pain in life itself. And I'm not and I'm talking about physical pain, but there's emotional pain too, but the medical community wanted to fix all of that. And so, man, if you had people in pain, 
I think getting those scripts, the idea of, of prescribing pain medication, it was the thing to do. And, and you really, you treat it. Like I said, when you're, when you got mantras, like pain is the fifth vital sign, which I mean, the other well, is it's a, yeah, on a scale of one to 10, what's your pain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that. What was your pain on a scale of one to 10? It was always a 10, you know, and, and if it didn't feel like a 10, maybe it felt like a seven, maybe it felt like a six. It was a 10 because again, I started knowing too. Once you say it's a six, once you say whatever, um, no, well, that's not, not too bad. Script. So, you know, yeah, it's not too bad, but at the same time that 10 really to a normal person that. You know, your sixes attend to other people. But like I said, there was no time where I truly um, felt like it was less than a 10. It was always really intense and all day, every day. So Over a 20-year period, how many pills do you think you consumed? Oh, my goodness. I couldn't even give you a number. I mean, I can tell you, like I said, that I was taking 80 milligrams uh, daily at the end. So what's that? Usually I'm taking those 25s or 20. It would be 20 milligrams uh, straight Roxy's and taking that, what, four times a day. I mean, I think they also had them all the way up to 80 milligrams per pill. So, I, But I was taking 20s. Then cancer patients take the 80s. Wow. Now, did you ever venture off into anything else? You get into heroin or anything like that, or was it always just the pills? No, anything for me. It's just the pills. Pills and drinking. That's my deal. You know. So Did drinking come after, or, or when did that come? When drinking came after college. I mean, now, don't get me wrong. There was a couple times in college. But here's the thing about me, too, was... All I cared about in college was doing the right thing, trying to be the the guy that Coach Osborne talked to us about being. Because the very first team meeting I ever went to, you know, I'm 17 years old because I got down there at 17. I didn't turn 18 until September. So my ears were always open and listening to what Coach Osborne had to say because my high school coach was the one. I had a lot of offers. He told me, no, Willie, I'm not. He sent, you know, my film got to other people, pretty much whoever saw it offered. But he's like, you're not going. I want to go to Florida State. He's like, you're not going there. He's like, you're going to go down to Nebraska. You're going to play for Coach Osborne because two things. One, I was young, so I was a class clown in class period. And then two is I did really well academically. So I'd be the, I'd have the top grade in my class, but I'd be that class clown that got sent down in that class pretty much every single day. He's like, you're going to go to Coach Osborne because he's going to keep you on a straight and narrow, and he's going to be a good influence on you. So like I said, that first team meeting, he says – Remember this always, guys, as you're playing down here. You guys are student athletes. Student always comes before the athlete. So with that being said, there'd be a few times that I had some drinks, but I'd always be smart about it. Be Some of my high school buddies that came down, having drinks with them, you know, at the apartment, being there. Because what I recognize about me early on is you give me one beer, I'm not done drinking my beer, so all the beers are gone. I, I was a binge drinker like no other. So I knew if I'm going to do this, it had to be around a certain place at a certain time. It may have been once or twice towards the end, like on my 21st birthday, where I went down like to the rail or something where a lot of the guys went. But I didn't go to those places while I was down there majority of the time. I, I really did not. I didn't go out, do anything. I studied a lot. And I was, like I told you before, pretty straight laced. That's why my roommate was Dan Alexander and then a buddy from high school, Dusty. So, yeah, so we were pretty straight laced and kept things really simple. And then when I was done, as I told you, turning that back on God and everything else, I'm like, I'm cutting free. I'm having some fun. So me and my pills, we were walking around kind of like The Rock. I don't know if you guys saw The Rock on the one show that they had ballers. You know, yep. he kind of has those pain pills. And he, I'm telling you, that, that's how it was all day, every day. You know, you have them like Skittles. And it's like, hey, I start aching a little bit. An extra one, I'm going out at nights, so even though I'm doing pharmaceutical sales, I'm going out to that club having a ton of uh, – Red Bull vodkas, you know, to the point where, hey, Red Bull has zero effect on me today, you know, because I think it, we just had such a good relationship for a while, you know, that, uh, that <laughs> some, that's just some what stuff, it is. So. You, you do, some stuff rewires you a bit. 
Man. So, so when did you when did you go from functional addict to non-functional addict? You know, that was just a man, it was just a trending period, put it that way, where it just kind of did a, a, a slide where, you know, I was functioning, being fine, doing my deal with pharmaceutical sales. I'd say life in general, you know, got stressful as you're going through and doing your job. As I said earlier, having zero emotional intelligence, no outlet anymore. Um, just being stressed, excuse me, would uh, definitely have extra pills and then that that drinking. And then, like I said, start putting on weight. And it just all came to a head around, gosh, I'd say too, getting married, you know, a couple of times and being in that one with my, my, where I had my daughter from this wife, that was my second wife. And, uh, that was stressful, man, because I'm a very light sleeper. So I'd be up with my daughter, you know, whenever she woke up, I'm up, you know, and then I'm trying to work, you know, 12 hour days. It was just a very intense time to one day. Like I said, I end up, uh, with all that bottled up, I made a really dumb decision, you know, and I had a, uh, excuse me, a road rage incident with a guy that was in his regular car and his regular clothes. And uh, it just, there was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out. There's notice somebody kind of goes by, has a little bit of a gesture, whatever. But Denver or Omaha? This is in Omaha. Okay. This is in Omaha in 08. And, uh, you know, I just had a little bit of words with that person. I followed him for a moment. You know, there was a tap of his brakes, and there was a, hmm, I'm too pissed off moment. I hit my gas, and I bumped into the back of him. And, and that was it. That was that moment of... Boom, you know, uh, of of allowing everything to kind of crash and burn was that moment. And he was a off duty police officer. He was an off duty police officer, so mm-hmm, Omaha police officer. Were, were you high at the time? I, on my pills, yeah. Oh yeah, I was, you know, I'd say always high on the pills. So basically, from two thousand to two thousand seventeen, you're high all the time. Pretty much on the pills, yeah. Wow. You know, the pills all day, every day, all day, every day on the pills. You know, and then like I said, I I binge drink on weekends, things like that, and. So you're selling. You were selling pharmaceutical sales in Denver. What are you doing in Omaha? You moved back. What year did you move back to Omaha? And was your career spiraling out of control? Were you were you ever homeless? Take me through some of that. What what that was like? Yeah. So I'd say you know I came back here and I about two thousand one and a half something like that where I had been in Denver you know and it just was done there. Wanted to get back here. Wanted to get back home. Uh, you know I was married that last year of college and it just didn't work out. Once the pro thing was done. And uh, I came back here, started over again. Um, ended up getting, I left from being in pharmaceutical sales in Denver, came back here with nothing, you know, on the table, just started kind of bouncing, trying to figure it out. So that's the first crash and burn a little bit. Then I get back into pharmaceutical sales, things start going again, like I told you, then met daughter's mom, you know, and through that time period. And I'd say uh, things were going okay, you know, because I'm working again. Then we get to, uh, as I'm doing that pharmaceutical sales, stress going on, medications increase. I mean, at this time, I'm thinking actually that I'm kind of going crazy, right? Because I don't know what's going on. So medications increase. I mean, I get thrown on a whole bunch of medications because I'm thinking I'm bipolar at this time because I don't understand how these pills are impacting me and how these weekend bend sessions are impacting me. So therefore, the doctor throws me in a whole bunch of bipolar medications, you know, just huge doses. I'm taking huge doses of Seroquel. I'm talking about 1,200 milligrams. I'm talking about 1,500 milligrams. That's a lot of Seroquel. It's a ridiculous amount. I mean, it's enough for a horse. But you got to remember, I had blown all the way up to 400 pounds. And I don't, but I still don't think that was necessary to 400 pounds. I was going to say. I don't think that's necessary. That's that's insane. Yeah, those metabolic enzymes are also all ramped up. Were you being honest with the docs? Were you telling them, hey, I'm I'm high on Hoxie all the time? No, I mean, because I don't really know. I don't really know at that time really how it was impacting me. That's just your norm. Yeah, that's that's your norm. That's my norm. Yeah, that's my baseline, right? That's my baseline. Um, 
And so that's what I'm kind of communicating to them. They're putting me on those high doses. All I know is, you know, I've got my moments of my anxiety, things like that. So I'm taking four times a day. I'm taking Xanaxes. You know, they gave me the big bars and it's four times a day. So I've got that. In addition to that, I can't sleep. Hadn't been able to sleep that whole 20 years. So I'm taking Ambien every night to go to sleep. So I have a buttload of medications that I'm on. And that's when, you know, and when I got in trouble with that, that road rage incident, I'm on all those medications. So when you ask if I'm high, I mean, I'm on all those medications and wow, it, and it just, things are insane. They're, they're insane, but I don't know at that time how insane they are, how out of control they are and things like that. So as you said, if we're going through that time period. I mean, it's a tough time in my life. I give up, you know, when I get that felony, because that's what it was. It was a criminal mischief charge in Nebraska. The felony level for criminal mischief back then uh, was $1,500. I think the damage to the guy's vehicle was like $1,750, okay? So they get, so I get the felony, and as you know, with a felony, you can't have a job doing pharmaceutical sales or a professional job or a lot of things. So that's when I truly crash and burn, and the job's gone, the house is, you know, repo, the cars are repo life is done. I'm suicidal. It's a mess. I end up going and living in the Salvation Army because again, I'm 400 pounds. Now, now I can reflect back on this. And during the time, I also knew something was going on. And one of the reasons why I loved Eminem, you know, and, and listening to his songs, because he's talking about, you know, sitting in the chair basically and nodding in and out again and those type of things and different medications. That was my life. We could be sitting, having a conversation and mid conversation, I'm straight snoring and not knowing what's going on. And also, I'm thinking we're having a great conversation, and you're not understanding a single word of what I'm saying. I finally had family members, like my dad, say, you are on way too much medications. I can't understand a word that you're saying. You're mumbling. You're drooling. And, uh, you know, I had it. So, yeah, it was it was pretty insane. Was it? It's, so that was 08. Mm-hmm. So you were still on those narcotics till 2017? Well, I was yes, I was on those those narcotics all the way up to seventeen. Yes, first of all, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned your dad. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you balloon up to four hundred pounds. That, that's big, no matter what size you are, right? I mean, did any did you have anybody any support staff go, Willie? You got to stop. Something's seriously wrong. Or did nobody did nobody step up? I, you know, put it this way: there were times where my sisters, you know, things like that, would say something to me. Um, but everyone else, I pretty much had run everybody else away in my life. You know, I was that guy that all I could do is woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. And that's every single conversation that I would have with people is woe is me. And personally, it's like I can reflect back now or or I can even think about some people that you run into who is a woe is me all the time. I'm so I can't I don't have enough energy in me to deal with woe is me, you know, all day, every day. And so now I can also say. I can understand how people couldn't do that because it was like I would just suck all their energy, you know. So by that time, again, that's another reason I was living in the Salvation Army because I had no friends. I'd run my friends off, right, the friends who have a place that I can maybe go stay. No one wants to be around you anymore, you know. And so that that's where I was at, and that's where things were. And that was, yeah, that was around. I lived in the Salvation Army from like 2010 into like 2011. So I was there almost two years of living in the Salvation Army because, again, I had nowhere to go. So, so you finally, what year did you have surgery? I'd have surgery, and, and let me backtrack that too. Okay. I was so out of it mentally and physically that I got placed on disability. So I got placed on full disability, SSDI, back in 2010. Okay, So I'm on SSDI. Yep, yep, that didn't make it in there. But I'm on SSDI 
Yeah, I, I, I've worked. I've been able to work off of that. Right. So I was up on it that whole time. So during this time period, I, I run into a guy who contacts me off of Facebook. He sends me a, a message on Messenger. Again, no friends. Right. I've got my disability check. So I was able to get my own apartment finally. And this guy reaches out, says he was I was one of his favorite fullbacks. He, lo- he loved watching me play. Uh, can he contact me? And I'm sitting there like, I have no friends. No one wants to contact me. Sure, you can contact me. Calls me, tells me, you know, he's having a rough time in his life. You know, he struggles with alcoholism, things like that. And I'm like, well, you know, hey, I'm struggling too, you know, in a sense. And we kind of just bond. And I'm there for him. I listen to him. And that that was for uh, about, a, I'd say, six-month period. I moved down to Mississippi because at this point, I'm so suicidal. I just don't want to be here. Why Mississippi? So Mississippi, because my mother's down there. Okay. My, my, and my parents are still, you know, they're married and they're both down there. But my mom was like my rock. My mom's the one who day one has always told me there's nothing I can ever do that will take her love away from me. We'll have her to where she doesn't believe in me. She's the one that always t- was telling me things will change. She's like, now you may have to make some changes, but things can and will change if you do as well. And uh, so I finally go down there because no longer is just being there for my daughter enough for me. That was the thing that kept me alive for a long period of time. But I finally realized that I'm struggling so much just in life in general. I'm literally searching around my car trying to find change on the ground to be able to get my daughter a hamburger from McDonald's on the days I'm able to have her. So things have changed, and I'm going to check out. So I go, I go down to be around my mom. Being down there, you know, this guy who I had been there for, you know, notifies me that there's a foundation around that he knows that will help ex-athletes if they are in a really bad situation and they can't afford their own medical care. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, uh, they reach out and they let me know that they uh, have heard that I've had a rough situation, that um, I can't pay for my own uh, surgery. I'm sitting there at 400 pounds. They know I need a disc replace and that they're going to do that for me. And uh, so that's how this kind of journey began, this turnaround. So, and that was the Nebraska Greats Foundation? The Nebraska Greats Foundation. So Jim Rose, who who was mm-hmm. with us in Grand Island yep. or, uh, last year, uh, of course, uh, he, he's the executive director. Jerry Murtaugh is big into the Nebraska Greats Foundation. Yep. D- did they know you were popping pills at the time? Oh, yeah. Really? You know, pretty much. I mean, that's what you were doing. That's what I was doing to uh, yeah. deal with the pain. So, yeah, I mean, everybody knew. So what year did you have the surgery then? So I had the surgery towards the end of uh, 2017. Um, that That's when I ended up having it. So you get out of surgery. Are you still taking the pills? Or are you like, oh, pain's gone Pills done. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, you ever, I'm you ever seen? You ever seen the Larry Flint? You remember, I forget the no, name. No. You remember the Larry Flint story? Yeah. But Larry Flint was always he was hooked on painkillers, right? Larry Flint ran Hustler. If you ever watched, you know. Which actually the movie's a great. The, movie, yeah, and so. I forget the name of the movie, but it was like uh, as soon as he wasn't in pain, he's like, I don't need the pills anymore, and his entourage was all addicted with him. They like. He's like, I'm not in pain. I don't need the pills. That wasn't the case. Yeah, no, that wasn't the case with me. No, I still needed my pills. I'm like, I, I love these things. So, no, I'm I'm done. The back the back surgery is done. And and but here's the thing: is that that script was way lowered significantly. So instead of having my 20 of a straight Roxy, you know, we're going back down to like the oxycotton. We're starting back down all the way down to like 10 milligrams with a 650 acetaminophen combo, and. Uh, and that doctor, you know, then he transferred on to the five milligrams with the 650 acetaminophen. And I'm starting to scratch my head. And I'm looking at him I'm like, why are you doing this? And he's saying, because you don't need it anymore. And, uh, 
Yeah, he, he started talking also about all the things about the opioids, where he was discussing the new clinical studies, where he was talking about, you know, how they were put out there and, and not even with the best numbers in the first place because he used all healthy patients and all kinds of things. So he's the first one who really started to educate me on that. And I did read about it and I'm all about clinical studies and data. So if you can show me something that actually shows the results, you can show me the participants who were in it and I can see all those things um, that are in play and what the outcome is, then my brain, it makes sense. So that's the moment when I started to realize that, uh, yeah, I clinically, I guess I don't need these, but uh, I don't know how to get off them either until that script was gone, put it that way. And I had moved back here in 18, and, and that's when the script was pretty much done. So right. I've, I've seen guys, you see the stories of heroin, coke, and some other things, meth. Um, what's the withdrawal like on, on, on the oxy? What, what is, what is, did, you, did you go through that? Oh, yeah, I definitely went through the withdrawal from the oxy because... Here's the thing is I also knew that a lot of people who went off of the oxys, they started taking, um, I'm trying to think here for a moment, I had a quick brain lapse, but a lot of them started taking the other, the, well, why can't I think of what it is? Go ahead and help me out. Like methadone? Not or? The, quite the methadone, but the other one. Oh, the, like the, the kind of like the agonist antagonist combos. Yes. And it was like, like the bupropion. Yes, yeah, like the bupropion. Yeah. So a lot of guys are taking bupropion. And then a lot of people, once they do that, that's just the next thing for them. And it's like a lot of people will stay stuck on that for life. So I knew that already. So I was like, I went back to football mode where I'm like, I'm done. I know the hell I'm about to face, but I'm going to face it head on. And so I can tell you what, because you say you can cuss on here. I was shitting for, you know, two weeks. I mean, and I was throwing up for two weeks, and it was a mess. So what did I do prior to being done with that last pill? I went and I stocked up on a big old thing of Gatorade. And so as I'm going through all that, I'm pounding my Gatorades. I'm going through hell. I've got myself covered with blankets because I'm sweating it all out. I knew everything that was, was going to happen to me. And I just, like I said, I just faced it straight on. By yourself or did you go to a treatment facility? By myself because I was kind of finishing that part when I was still down in Mississippi. And uh, I didn't want anybody else to have to do that. I had my own little apartment down there. And it's just, that's not fun for anybody to be around or to see. And I wouldn't suggest anyone else do that. I do not recommend it because clinically you shouldn't do that. I mean, you can die from that if you don't have the correct monitoring. But I had enough of awareness of what I was putting myself into that if I felt like I was in a dangerous situation, sure, I could have called for medical help. But I also knew that with God at that time, I realigned myself, right, that I was going to be okay, but I was going to go through a tough, a, a tough moment. So, God, I was going to say that's impressive. You yeah. don't see a lot of people. No, most people don't have the willpower to do that. They're going to give up halfway through that journey. Yeah, that's, that's I a, would. It's just, I mean, you know, a lot of people, you, you talk about some of the other medications, the methadone, the like the bupronex or bupropion and some of the other medications you switch over to that are still, they're still kind of pressing those opioid buttons a bit. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's kind of like quitting cigarettes, though. Like, I know a lot of people who are like, well, I'm going to cut down. I'm going to go from two packs a day to a pack a day. I'll go from a pack a day to a half, half a pack. If you're if you're going off that way, you can, you can always keep cutting down and never stop. I mean, you can always cut it in half and keep using. It. Well, I'll only go every other day. Well, I'll only go a couple days a week. Just stopping is probably one of the more effective ways to do it, but it's also probably got to be the hardest way to do it, hands down. Mm -hmm. And probably the hardest thing about it, I would think, would be coming to that both mental and emotional decision-making 
process of here's what I'm going to do. I mean, that, that had to have been kind of interesting to go. I mean, was there a process that you went through to get to that decision of here's how I'm going to do this? There was, there was, and it's, I can't say that it's anything I can take credit for at all. It's just, like I said, I kind of had renewed my relationship with God because I stopped trying to put God in a box, right? To me back then I was putting God in a box. I'm thinking it has to be literally just like this Bible is saying, I have to do exactly like what people would think is a sin or something. And I stopped doing that. I started seeing beauty in the world around me. I started seeing things like butterflies, flowers. I mean, my, again, when you're around guys that played football or something, they, they'll sit there and be like, that's the silliest, stupidest shit they've ever heard in their life. And that's fine. Good for you. But for me, it's it's that's my life today is I see beautiful things. I look, look up, I see clouds, I see the sun coming through the clouds and I see that's God. You know, I see people when they hug and things like that. When I see people come together, I'm like, that's God. That's the God I'm talking about. Right. Not something where you're pounding a Bible and, and trying to shove anything down anybody's throat. It's just seeing beauty and seeing love. So I reconnected with that. And so there was just different things that happened. And that was one of them. It was like, okay, I got to be done with these because I have to literally be done with them too. The script is going to end. What am I going to do? Right. It's like that decision for going down and playing for Nebraska. You either be a fullback and be on the team or you cannot. Right. So did the, did the pills and the alcohol end at the same time? No, 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 they did not. They did not. The story no, continues. The story continues. The story continues. So I moved back here, you know, uh, right at around, I say it was uh, September, October, right at the end of October, almost beginning of September of 18. I believe that was, yes, yes, beginning of uh, September, so August, September. So I get there, um, I'm done with the pills, and I'm doing my usual, maybe like kind of binging on the weekends, you know, watching games, doing that kind of stuff. And one day I pushed the limit a little too much. You know, I, uh, I'm done with the pills. And like I said, I'm also, I'm realizing that the pills did a lot for me, a lot for, more for me than just numb the pain. They were numbing the brain. They were dealing with my emotions. They were making things somewhat manageable in life. So I felt like my life was now unmanageable. Things were a bit out of control and uh, the alcohol helped soothe that. So one day I'm literally starting with my little six pack of uh, Miller High Lifes and uh, kind of decide, you know, this is going to be the day I'm going to have some fun, you know. So I go out and get a 30 case, you know, I get a case of 30 as I'm watching whatever. And then I uh, combo that to, to just wash it all down, I guess, was going to be some, uh, I'm trying to think, crown apple. And so as I'm drinking that crown apple after, I don't know how many of that. Well, that's a mistake in and of itself. Yeah, the crown, the crown <laughs> apple, or the mixer, the mixer. So, you know, I can tell you this. I'm drinking that crown apple just like I'm drinking those beers. And I know at that moment is when I know, too, that my drinking is out of control because I'm telling myself and I'm telling my brain, you need to stop. And for the first time, it's like my, my, my wrist and my mouth, they're doing their own thing, man. And it's still, I'm still drinking it to where I literally drink myself into a coma. No you shit. Know, I drink myself into a coma. And that's where, you know, you know, Omaha Magazine with Julius Frederick, he did a wonderful job as far as breaking it down and what we, we talked about and trying to sum it up because they have a, a limited word count. And so, you know, he summed up that experience that I had when I was in that moment of being in that coma was my bright light experience. And I've, I've explained it to some people before and some people look at me like I'm crazy, but it's in that moment, I'm, it's like it, it's only a moment, right? It's a quick few seconds that I can remember, and it's like me going back to being like my five-year-old self when I'm as, as innocent as I could remember, and just being that kid that loved everybody before I got the whole beat up and bullied aspect of life, right? Because we all got a story, and so 
that's me at five and I see the biggest, brightest light I've ever seen. If you can think of the brightest light you've ever seen and, and just multiply that by 10, it was the brightest thing I've ever seen. And this, whatever this bright light is, has no shape or form to it at all, but it picks me up and I feel like held. I feel comforted. I feel like just warm and, and, and embraced. And the craziest thing too is this, this, this bright light tells me, you know, that it's, it's just seen all, all the dumb decisions I've been making, you know, and it, and it lets me know that it recognizes I'm making these dumb decisions because I feel unloved. I don't feel loved and I don't feel like I really should be here at all. And this bright light tells me you are loved. I love you. And I want you to get back down there. And I want this, but this is your last chance. I want you to make the most out of it. And so I come back down and the craziest part about that is two things. One, I actually feel love for the first time in my life, but it is the first time in my life that I've had self-love. I swear to God, like, it's like I felt like the Grinch, that Grinch moment where I go with this little teeny tiny heartbeat that just gets bigger and bigger. And when I wake up, they're pulling out that tube and I'm coughing for them and they're sucking out the stuff, you know, as they do. And I literally, for the first time in my life, I wanted to live. Like I, I, I woke up on fire that I want to live, but I recognized at the same time that I need to go get help immediately or else I'm going to die. Before you go to get the help, who found you in your coma? Who saved your life? Well, you know, the the woman who is my wife today, you know, we were girlfriend, you know, she was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, she's the one that uh, kind of heard me, you know, as I'm drinking, have my thing. And all of a sudden she didn't hear me anymore. She comes around the corner. I, I believe I combine, not I believe, I know, I combine that drinking with, I, I think I took half my bottle of, of the uh, Xanax. Just, I would do that at times. I literally would just take a bo- uh, the, the bottle, a full bottle of my pills, and I'd wake up at that time and I'd be pissed off because I didn't want to be here. I literally did not. And it's like that combo of that drinking and then slamming that half of a, a bottle of them. She comes around the corner, I guess. She's told me, I don't know this, obviously, because I can't remember. But she sees me foaming at the mouth, a whole bunch of blue stuff coming out. So just to clarify, you were off the oxy and the opiates, but you were still taking the Xanax and some other things? Oh, yeah. I'm still taking a buttload of bipolar medications, you know, and I'm, I'm not. Uh, yeah. So that's that's what I'm doing. That's what I got going on. And, and a lot of things are just kind of going on. Yeah. Jeez. OK, so, so you need help right at that point. Where, do you, where do you get it? Craziest thing is I'm still on disability, so nowhere in Nebraska really wants to take you when you have a disability because I had Medicare. You know, I didn't even have Medicaid. And so I'm calling all these treatment facilities and no one will take me. And, uh, you know, God just does some weird things in your life because somehow, some way, I was friends with Bob Newton on Facebook or something. And he and I had actually talked before. And I was talking to him before about the pills. And I was saying to him, I think I may have a problem with these pills because I was, I was thinking maybe I did, but I was thinking maybe I didn't. And I was just very confused. And I kind of talked to him because I knew he had a background in addiction and he had a very good understanding of those things. And Which so, we should probably clarify. Bob yeah, Newton, sorry. former All-American offensive tackle for Nebraska, played pro ball. I'm not going to say it's a similar story because everybody's story is different. He had his own addiction story okay. that he ended up going through, and some of it was helping himself. Some of it was finding people who helped him. Some of it was people who came to him to help him. And he ended up becoming, I mean, for a period of time, I know he was an addiction counselor, mm-hmm. but still does a massive amount of work in the in that arena. Um, but he's helped a ton of guys over the years. But anyway, they're yeah. uh, just for people listening. If you don't know Nebraska football history, Bob Newton, 
All-American at Nebraska who, again, like I said, had his own addiction story that has turned around and has done a huge amount of work for a lot of people over the years to help him out. In a major way, in a major way. And so I reached out to Bob and, you know, since we had talked before, I let him know, hey, I'm because they didn't let me go away from leave the hospital. Right. Because they're thinking I tried to take myself out. So therefore, as soon as they feel I'm stable, they ship me from being I think it was maybe at UMC. I don't remember. They shipped me over to being in Council Bluff at in the like the psych ward part or whatever. McDermott. Right? Yeah. What was that the name? Uh, yeah. So the McDermott. So I was in the McDermott psych ward at uh, at Mercy Hospital for okay. for a couple of weeks. Yeah. That was back when I was in high school. Back when you know, so we all got a story. Yeah, we man. all got a story. True. <laughs> and it's like, hey, hey, I lived at Lasting Hope for over ten years. You know, for that whole time period, three or four or five times a year. Yeah. So yeah, we all have a story. exactly. So it's like. So I'm there, and before I want to make sure before they release me from there, I'm going to be going to treatment. I know exactly where I'm going to be going because I know I can't go home because I know that at this moment, I'm even though I want to live, I don't. I know I don't have any control over alcohol. If I'm around that alcohol, I'm going to drink it. There's going to be a problem. You know, I'm done. So in reaching out to Bob Newton, somebody else, you know, with the greats at that time early on uh, was a woman named Margie Smith, who's like a second mom to me now. And um, she knew Bob um, and Bob kind of talked to her. He's just kind of getting an idea for how ready was I really, you know, in a sense, because people can say they're somewhat ready out of a moment of desperation where they're wanting to change for family. They're wanting to change for their, their wife or their spouse. And ultimately, that's not really how kind of getting sober for long term is really going to work. Right. You have to be ready for you. And even though he knew from me that I was ready for me, he just wanted you got to do a little research. So he made a couple of calls and he got me scholarshiped in for at a place called Recovery Ways down in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so he got it set up between him and a guy named Pat Gleason, um, who I guess is an associate of Bob's. And they've had a longstanding relationship over a long period of time. And uh, they set it up to the day that I'm getting released from the hospital. I'm flying down that day to recover, you know, to Recovery Ways so I can get the help that I need. And that's kind of where this whole turnaround starts. You know, the the amazing part about being down there was I was ready to be completely, fully honest. I was ready to face all the things that I never wanted to face, whether it was things from childhood, those things of, you know, just things you don't even talk about. I was ready to face them all, be honest about them all and work through them because I knew in order to get right mentally, I needed to do that. Right. To get rid of the things that I wanted to drown away with the alcohol or any kind of substance. I had to face it head on and and deal with it. The neat thing about being down there, because when you talked about was I still in all the Xanaxes, all those things, is that by being fully honest and writing down a timeline of life events and when I drink more, when I pop extra pills, the uh, psychiatrist down there just takes a look at me. He looks at everything, looks at all different scores, and he says to me, he's, Good and bad news to a certain extent. He's like, which one do you want? So in no order, he lets me know you're not bipolar at all. I'm taking you off all these medications because you shouldn't have even been placed on them. So number one, you're no longer on your Seroquels, Depakotes, uh, Prozac Weeklies, uh, any of those. He's I'm taking you off all your sleeping meds. No more Ambien's or Lunesta's, none of that. He's like, you know, your thing that is your problem is your addiction. He's like, your addiction right now, he's like, that is what it is. And he goes, 
yes, as far as clinically, yes, your score is off the charts when it comes to PTSD. You know, a lot of times people will think about PTSD. They think about people that go around and, you know, that maybe it's a military flashback. They do something bad or whatever, because we as for whatever as a society, we like to stereotype and place things into our little comfortable box. Right. But PTSD in a clinical sense is more of having like a heightened uh, reaction to things like with your body. You know, you, you experience something, your body just is like, ooh, you know, it's like a 10 for you or mentally you just all of a sudden you, you're really defensive because you don't mean to be. It's just, you, you, it just there's something that gets triggered in you a little bit and you're trying to like, you know, deal with it. So that's where I find out that, yep, not bipolar. And that's where I, I find out that, yeah, the pills and the alcohol out of control and it's time to start making a change. So what's the PTSD? So the PTSD, as far as specifically, what was it? Yeah, I mean, because you, you brought up earlier the bullied and stuff like that. I mean, it, was there anything that, that, that flashing back that you, you that comes to your mind or anything like that, or well, is it just? There's just different things. I mean, you know, when I was real young, it's like yeah, bullying. You know, I was that kid that man. I, I don't know. I, I just I, I walk around all happy and jolly, and I was kind of chubby and things like that. And you know, third, I can remember being like that. And and and, and guys, I can remember all the way back to being three years old. But you know, I can remember being like that in California before we moved here when I was four years old. Uh, and there'd just be a bully that was down the hill come up and just pop me in my head. You know, and I I didn't know why. You know, I got here and I remember being in the third grade and walking home. Some sixth grader just came up and just thumped me in my head. And I didn't know why. You know, I run home and I cried to my sister, you know, and I had a middle sister that she she didn't, you know, my she was the sweetest person still is today, but she defends family. So she'd come down and she'd tell the little boy, she'd grab him by his and shake him up a little bit. You don't touch my little brother, you know. And then, you know, like I said, I kind of transformed, you know, back in the day, you were either the bully or you got bullied and it kind of transformed and morphed. Also, my dad we did not have a great relationship actually we had a really shitty relationship for a very 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 long period of time you know my dad was an officer in the air force he was born in 1943 in a very small town in mississippi so my dad went through a lot he went through a lot to get seen a lot of shit man he's seen a lot of shit he's lived through a lot of things he's seen a lot of things down in mississippi things i had no idea i mean as a kid you can't comprehend maybe what your parent goes through to sacrifice for you to put food on the table to pay the rent pay the bills and uh, my mom, who's the most sweetest person in the world, she's an angel, right? So she would be that person that was my comforter. Um, but my dad, at times, I was, you know, he had a way of things. You know, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you start a project, you finish it. If you didn't do those things, you got beat. And I don't mean, I do mean as far as the belt, you get beat really well with the belt. I mean, we, you know, and I just didn't understand the man. I, I didn't understand him. And I was angry with him. You know, he'd come to things like, say, my college games, and I'd be embarrassed when he came to my college games because he'd be super drunk, you know, and he'd be, he'd holler free willy. He'd holler, you know, it's Miller time, you know, those things. And I didn't really care for attention back then, too, you know, so it, it would embarrass me. Your dad and those things. Yeah, I would say at that time that he was. I would say that he was at that time, you know, but he was a functioning one because, again, he's in the Air Force. He did his job and he, and he you know, and was fine. Now, I can also say, that that's one of those things that, yes, I really need to work through because I was really, really, really angry at him. I was very angry at him because I didn't understand. I had worked my ass off throughout my life to get to that next level, to, you know, to please him, to please him. Yeah. I wanted to please him. I wanted to make him proud, you know, and it's like, he never could say, I'm proud of you. 
Even when I got down to Lincoln, was a starting fullback. He could never say, "I'm proud of you." And one of the things uh, this you know he was. Uh, no, I didn't then. I, I, I but now you do, don't you? Oh yeah, that's what I'm get to is that now. Yes, we talk now, and it's like even then, you know, I my dad he's old school, so he 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 kind of chuckles because he's like, I always wanted to hear him say, "I love you too." I wanted a hug, you know. I wanted that from my dad, um, and uh, he. he See, I can reflect back now. I can see the little things he would do. I can see the little things he would do and the little ways he was trying to show me that he loved me. You know, we watched the toy with Richard Pryor in it, right? I don't know if either one of you watched that show. But I love that because there's so many jokes. There's so many things. And as a kid, that's all I saw was the jokes and how funny Richard Pryor was and how that kid was somewhat of a little rambunctious little asshole to him, (laughs) you know? And, and, And it got cool by the end, right? Because then they developed this cool relationship. The kid gets it to be a little better behavior. But ultimately, it's all about the kid and his dad and those two coming together and having a relationship. And Richard Pryor is the one that pulls those two together, right? That mortar between those two bricks that teaches the son that he's gotta be willing to, you know, see what his dad's trying to do and 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 respect that and appreciate it and he's telling the dad you got to simply tell your son you love him that you're proud of him to hold him to hug him and so my dad will watch that with me and today i can see and i can say that that's what my dad was trying to say in a sense right but he couldn't say it himself so like i said i was so pissed at him and those were the things i need to work through and it's like today now this didn't develop overnight obviously because there was a long standing period but he knew early on that I was going to treatment. He knew early on that, you know, got to put that plan in my head that I was going to be a nurse when I was at treatment and I was doing a whole bunch of testing because the thing is I had that felony and I have that felony today and you can't be a nurse when you have a felony. But the neat thing is I was fully honest because when I came out of that, I knew I wanted to go to Creighton. Creighton was what popped in my head, right? The blue is it just I wanted to go to Creighton. Being a kid from Omaha, Nebraska, Bellevue, Nebraska, you back in the day, you wanted to go to Lincoln to play freaking football and to be a freaking national champion, and you you stayed away from Creighton unless you wanted to just academically, you know, because it's an academic, you know, all American there. Put it that way. It's like it's the best of the best. So I wanted that. I wanted to be from both, and I knew. It was going to take a miracle to get into Creighton. And my parents knew what I was going to be trying to do. And my dad was kind of sitting back because he's one of those guys, you can't tell my dad anything. You got to show my dad. So as I was working through things and as I got done with my prereqs at Metro, got that had that 4-0 and got into Creighton, he's still kind of sitting there. As I get about a quarter way through Creighton, he starts getting a little closer and we start getting a little closer. By halfway done, you know, to the way to to where I'm halfway to three-fourths done. He and I really started getting closer where I'm also working my program of recovery, right? I'm working my program of recovery and I'm, and I'm understanding myself at a different level. I'm understanding that hurt people hurt people. I'm understanding that a person can only do and deal with things with the tools that they have in their own toolbox. And so I could understand my dad's an old school guy. He, he doesn't know this different way of what I'm kind of wanting or expecting. So what I'm wanting and expecting is unrealistic. So I need to meet him where he's at. You know, I need to understand that, like I was saying earlier, those movies, those are the things that showed his love. Him being at the games, him yelling out, it's Miller time, him yelling out, free Willie, that's him saying he's proud. You know, those are the things. And I can sit there and I was able to talk to him and I was able to say that to him, saying I always wanted you to be proud of me. You being at those games saying free Willie, you saying Miller time, you, that's when you're proud. 
I always wanted you to tell me you love me. You watching, you know, the toy with me. It was your way of showing and saying that you love me. I'm like, so I appreciate that, man. And I just, uh, I told him, yeah, I've, I've, I've had times where I've hated you. I've hated you. I've gone off on you times when I was just drunk as could be, and I'd yell at you and I'd ask you why. And now I just understand that, you know what, you wanted to make sure that I didn't make a piss poor decision. I have a lot of family members, members and cousins who were gangbangers and things like that because that's what we saw. That's what we grew up around, you know, and you, you, we didn't have a whole lot of there was no doctors. There's no people that are doing some great things. There's him in the Air Force and I know how he is at home. I'm like, I'm not going to the Air Force, you know, and the other, only other thing was to be a professional athlete or, or sell drugs. And it's like, I don't know. You know, I thought I did well because I was a professional drug dealer. Right. You know, professional, you know, so it was legal. So I'm a legal drug dealer, you know, doing pharmaceutical sales. But point is he was doing what he wanted. He wanted he, he did his best to make sure that I didn't go and make poor decisions. Ultimately, I made one on my own, but I did everything I could to try and write that stuff and to make those things better. And by doing that, I wrote when I wrote to Creighton, I was able to talk about all those things. I was able to talk about all the changes. That's why Creighton let me in. My felony wasn't for something that was drug related or, you know, through like a major assault, something like that. So therefore, they're willing to take a look. And you talked about we talked about earlier when we we're talking about having played for f football down in Lincoln and what we do it all again. I say, and I, I don't hesitate in saying yes, because here's the thing. Guys talk about NIL. They talk about, you know, what they should have got or how they should have got it and things like that. I can recognize that today one of the things that's helped me to be able to do this, to have this comeback, is from having played down in Lincoln, right? There are people who look at us having played and they respect that we played. They knew how much hard work it took to play down there. So they give us a benefit of the doubt of when we put our mind to something that we can do it. When we say we're going to do something that we're going to do it because of having seen us do it and push through things before. So, so you do the Creighton, uh, Creighton, that's an accelerated nursing program. Yes. 12 month accelerated. 12, program. Rob, how, how hard has it become a nurse in 12 months? Yeah, that's not easy. That's a lot. Of, well, and I, I remember, because I was following you along on LinkedIn the whole time. It's funny that you said that, because I, that's where I followed Willie's journey. We just connected yeah. on Facebook. You you told your whole journey on LinkedIn. I, you may have done it another place. But I think there's a lot of people who there's followed lot, your journey. There's a lot of people who followed you. And it was those LinkedIn posts. It's like every time it'd pop up, it's, uh, I'm reading those. I had no idea. Yeah. No one oh, liked yeah. them. So, you know, you, you know, but no, but seriously. Oh, you had a lot. I, had no I guarantee you, you I had, had no a idea. lot of people following, following yeah, more than you think. that journey on LinkedIn. There, there was a, that made an impact on a lot of people. Well, here's the thing. In a positive sense. Yeah. And I hope I, I, yeah. I hope that comes across when I say that, but that was the whole time you were going through that. When you started nursing school, that was one of those, oh, I need to pay attention to this. This is an interesting journey, and this is there's something to be said from your journey that was compelling by following that. Well, I appreciate that, and the reason why I shared what I shared is when you get in trouble, people they love to blast when you get in trouble, especially if you played Donald Lincoln, right? And that was the most embarrassing, humiliating moment of my life, is because. I purposely tried to never get in trouble in Lincoln because it would reflect on the university, it would reflect on Coach Osborne. And when I got in trouble and they tied me to Lincoln and, you know, and everything else to me, that's tying to Coach Osborne, that's tying to that whole deal, man. So I just, 
I just buried my head in the sand. So I wanted people to know these are the things I'm doing. I want people to know that I struggle, you know, that life is not easy. But I want people to know because, again, I tried quitting so many times. I, I literally did. I mean, I got my scar from when I tried to check out. And I'm still here for some doggone reason. And I feel like it's just to be brutally honest, to speak from the heart, to share from those experiences so that anybody who is struggling, somebody who wants to die, someone who who was on that brink, I, I shared those things to maybe give a glimmer of hope, you know? And I'm willing to bet, first of all, I think talking about them, and we were talking about this before we started recording, talking about it keeps the demons away, by the way. I, I mean, when you, when you address your demons, the demons stay away because you're talking about them. But I'm also willing to bet the more open you are, the more people reach out to you going, shit, man, I thought I was the only one going through it. I bet have you had a lot of people reach out and going, I've, I've gone through something, maybe not the exact same thing, but mm -hmm. people are willing to say, man, I, th I thought I was the only one. Or I, I, I. Yeah, I, I'd be willing to say that, yes, there are some people who are willing to kind of reach out and talk a little bit, um, excuse me, you know, and, uh, and, and to do that. And, uh, yeah, it's been crazy. You know, it, it's been, it's, it's been one crazy, you know, journey, you know, and, um, I, I'm just filled with gratitude, you know, because it just was one of those things I, I had no idea, um, what was going to happen. I, I tried to also share because I, I want to be real. So as I'm in nursing school, I share, yeah, I pass the exam, but oh, there's I, ones see, I failed. That, that was the you know? thing. I mean, you talk about, hey, here's the here's this one exam. I'm going to get it next time. Yeah. I mean, there was that was, that was, I don't mean to, to like minimize it by saying, man, that was cool following that story, but it was. I mean, compelling is yeah. probably a, be a far better word. I'm trying to find a word that encompasses. You got a movie script right. in your yeah, picture. You know there, that. There's, no. there's not great no word. There's not great words for that. Um, but, but it was an amazing story to follow, and it was. There's a reality of it because I mean, going through med school, you're trying to study this stuff, and it's you're watching these people who are trying to get through that. Mm -hmm. in, I mean. And I'm not saying it's like you go into what what we've done in the medical community. It's like, well, yeah, we went through that because we're, we're, we're just trying to get through it. I don't mean it in that sense. But there's difficulties and there's trials and there's hills and mountains and there's valleys. There's these really great times of going through that. But there's a struggle going through that in and of itself. And it was in that was a side kind of a side note to that is watching you document some of those struggles on LinkedIn going through that accelerated program. I mean, I like I said, it had an impact on me. It was like, oh, I'm totally following Willie through all of this. So oh, like I said that thank you for sharing that. And it, I, times like that see here's the thing about me too is i got this phd in negative self-talk right so then when i get compliments <laughs> you know i do i do that's just how i'm wired you know and it's like that's one of those things i had to get help for right and still work through it's like you know working through like cognitive behavioral therapy those type of things because you know you need to be kind to yourself you need to love yourself you need to say nice things to yourself just like you do other people and i'm horrible at that and i still work on that so thank you for saying that but also when you say something to somebody it, we worry so much today about it being politically correct or I maybe not being enough. No, you don't, which is good. No, I, I'm with you. But it's simple. It means a lot, though, when you say you're proud of somebody. Like, you know, when I hear somebody say I'm proud of you, it does mean a lot. But I know, yes, can it convey fully what I'm trying to say? No, it may not. But I get what you're saying, and I appreciate the sentiment a lot. And when I talk about how I'm also just 
there's a lot of times I'm moved to tears because there's things that have happened on this journey that I did not expect or know were going to happen. And what I mean by that is I knew some way, somehow, by continuing to work hard, by continuing to be open and honest, staying sober, which is the most important thing my when working my my recovery program, that God was going to be able to open doors that should not, and, and to regular folks, it, it wasn't going to open. Because when I was getting, when I was doing school, there are even people who were thinking, he's paying all this money, he's at Creighton, and he's going to graduate. He's not going to be able to be a nurse. Like, that's not going to happen. And the state board had to allow me to sit and take my NCLEX, and they did. They had to make the decision would they let me practice, right? Because I passed it right away. And I had people who were willing to write letters to me because, like you said, I put it all out there. I'm open about my whole deal, my past, and what I went through, right? And it's like there are people who are willing to write those letters of recommendation to that board where they got a ton of them. You know, when they initially wanted to talk to me, maybe over the phone, I said, mm -mm, I'm going to come down. I'm a face to face person. So I went down there and met with them. And when it came time for them to vote, this is what I've heard. I can't vouch for this for sure. hundred percent certainty is that it was unanimous. And then not only that is usually when a person say maybe has a past of addiction or something, there's going to be um, some, some, I don't, what's the key word to it. There's going to be some things tied into it, right? Stipulations or whatever. And I, I, they voted for a free and clear license for me. Okay. And they, you know, other people who are hiring me, or whatever, were willing to make sure that if they needed X amount of P tests, things like that, that they they would do that. They follow whatever protocol, but the board felt solid enough about it because one, I'm open and honest about everything. Two is that I went through Creighton and how strenuous and arduous of a program that is. And that I was able to complete that program, staying sober and, and working my program of recovery. And four is that being in recovery, it just doesn't end, right? It's just, I, we were talking about earlier, like, you know, you guys have your beers or whatever, and you're wondering, maybe, is that a thing? Well, it's funny because I go, I go, this is the first time we, we haven't had a beer during the podcast. He goes, well, you can drink. So I said, okay, I, I this might a be beer. The, I, this <laughs> might be like the third <laughs> time ever. <laughs> exactly. But Rob didn't drink, but you're yeah. like, oh, I like my Mountain Dew. Yeah. So I had my wife run out of QT and get him like the biggest Mountain Dew. <laughs> he can right. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. As I told him. what What's the hardest part about being sober now? Do you, What do you struggle with? Nothing, because you no, don't seem like it. No life in general. You, you're gonna, you're gonna. The way for me personally is like the way that say people want to think of say alcoholism or addiction things like that. They want to think of a person that's in the the alleyway and the whole brown bottle thing, and it's that's not really how it works, and it's not how it works for me. It's more so like an obsession of the mind, meaning. You dwell on things. You 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 know. You make a small error, and that error is something you cannot forget about. Like you just dwell on that, and it just stays with you, and it spirals and it spirals. Those are the type of things that can happen. But by doing and continuing to do like a program of recovery, it, it allows me to understand that, you know what? Uh, say my wife and I say say we might have an argument over something silly, right? I might dwell on that and maybe be frustrated about that. Well, she said or. You know, and you're trying to justify these things where when you're in a program of recovery, you can sit there and you can look at the situation. You don't have to keep spiraling out of control and you can say, you know what, I, I had a bad attitude in the way I said that or I was kind of cranky before we started. And you can simply go back and just be like, you know what, I'm sorry about that. I was really grumpy when I woke up this morning. That's no excuse. Um, you know, I, I was really snappy. And when I said that, therefore, our conversation went kind of crappy. 
just, you know, please forgive me for that, you know. And so you're able to just take ownership of things. You're able to kind of pump the brakes on things that you would normally say dwell on or think about. Because the next thing that happens when you're obsessing so much on that thing, the next thing is how do I deal with that? And the way the mind works for me personally would be like, okay, I got to take, I got to drink, right? Because it, it'll make me feel better. It would give that sign of relief. But it's like if you can go through those things mentally, process them that way, you get your relief. You don't need the alcohol or whatever substance to give you relief because you've learned to deal with them. Wow. What's next for Willie Miller? I mean, you're, you're, you're an OR nurse at Methodist Hospital in Omaha. Mm-hmm. Um, nurse what you want to be the rest of your life. You want to keep taking that somewhere else. Uh, what, what's next for Willie Miller? Next thing for me is I, I love being a nurse. And I, and I hope, especially in the OR, I, I love being a circulating RN. It's, it's a cool team world. Yeah, it's a cool world. It's an world. awesome world. I mean, you know, I get to be a part of a team where I'm working with the anesthesiologist. I'm working with the surgeon. I'm working with the scrub tests who are scrubbed in. And, uh, you know, and we're taking care of that patient. So we all got a goal and we're a team. So I love that. You know, next thing I have going is, you know, I've actually created my company. I have a LLC. It's Athletes Revived. It's keeping hope alive. And what it's what I plan to do with it is a couple of things. We're talking earlier, Rob, when you're talking about how, you know, when you're young, all of a sudden your identity becomes whatever sport you're playing. Well, my message to kids and to people and to college athletes, anybody, is that you don't have to be just that athlete. You know, you have a right to be who you want to be, right? So if you decide early on that you're going to be a doctor or you decide early on that you're going to be a teacher, well, mentally stay who you are as far as have that passion, have that thought, and be able to kind of have have a dual personality going. When you go onto the field, play your sport. You know, when you're doing your regular thing in the classroom, do your thing in the classroom, excel that way. If you care about people and you're passionate about people, stay involved that way. You know, be around people. It's just you you don't have to just be one thing. And it's like that's the message on on one aspect. The other is to just, you know, when it's all said and done, I mean, you – you run the risk of when you are just that one identity, you don't know who you are. And that's what happened with me being the guy who didn't even care about football as far as that identity and playing in college and things like that. Because again, I didn't know who I was. So I just want to help people to think about that earlier, to know who they are so that, you know, they can have those two things going so that when the sport is gone, you know who you are. The second thing with that too, is there's so much going on in the world today. There's different things as far as we didn't have to worry about the social media, you know, hell, we had to worry about our teammates seeing us get blasted on a play or something and they'd embarrass the hell out of you, you know, <laughs> and that'd be your thing. You'd be like, oh shit, I'm not going to make, let that happen again. Right. Because you know, that's not fun, but the, we didn't have to worry about the world. Oh my God, did you see him get blasted on that play? And this is coming from somebody who's never stepped on the field in their life, you know, that. Or, you know, you know, you got other athletes saying it. So it's a different world. It's a different time. These kids are under a lot more stress. So also I'm going to spend a a nonprofit off of this that's going to help pay for these kids to get early treatment as far as some counseling, some things like that to work through some of these things, because. If you can work through some of these things when you're younger and not let them build up to more and more and more things as you get older, that also can cut down on the rates of addiction and alcoholism because you're able to nip it in the butt a little earlier. You know, the longer you allow those things to build up and everything else, not only are you dealing with things like addiction or or alcoholism, you're dealing with suicide. I mean, kids are taking themselves out today because of certain things. So I just want to really get in and help in that way to help for the future that we have in, in society as a whole. And also just simple things as far as talking to the medical community through the whole part of, you know, having been an athlete, crashing and burning, overcoming adversity. I mean, there's so there's a lot. There's a lot there. 
Um, but the ultimate thing about it is just through spreading love and, and trying to give others hope because I had zero at one point. I had zero hope and I know how dangerous that is. You know, and by getting that surgery and the people that came into my life and, and my bright my bright light experience sparked a little hope. The people giving me that surgery sparked a bit of hope. And now it's just, you know, I'm on fire with that hope and just want to dish it out the best I can. Excellent, excellent stuff. Willie, I'm so glad you came up today and had a conversation with us. Yeah. Fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. And he, now, do you got a website, Athletes Revived? Is it up yet? Yep, yep. It's athletesrevived.org. It's just at the very beginning stage. That's fine. And you, and we would be remiss to not to mention again the Nebraska Greats Foundation who helped you with your surgery. Donate to those guys. They help a lot of former Huskers and, and former Creighton players. Uh, you don't have to be a Husker, just a former athlete. Right in the state of Nebraska. Um, check out the Omaha Magazine uh, article with Willie. He's on the cover of it. He looks good in those scrubs, as Dr. Rob says. And uh, you know what? Spread this, uh, Share this podcast wherever you can. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well because uh, you can watch this on YouTube. And make sure if you want to uh, support this podcast, support Bedford Sports. Bedford Sports, you can download the uh, app today on the Apple and Google Play stores. Use the promo code DOCTALK and you should be able to get a free $20 bet on your your very first bet. Wow, this is a good way to start 2023, Rob. This is an outstanding way. Appreciate the message. This is amazing. Yeah, really good stuff. It really is. Thank you for taking the time. Willie Miller, Dr. Rob Zadiska, I'm Travis Justice. We'll talk to you next time on the Doc Talk Podcast, presented by Betfred Sports. Betfred Sports.